Welcome to Cancer Conference Update and Commentary on Key Papers presented at the recent ASCO meeting in Chicago. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. ASCO President George Sledge called this the year of melanoma, and for the second consecutive year, the disease was discussed at the meeting plenary session, and I met with one of the presenters, Dr. Jed Walchok, for his take on the melanoma ASCO data, and he began by commenting on his paper evaluating the human monoclonal antibody that binds to CTLA-4, ipilimumab. This was the second phase three trial of ipilimumab in patients with metastatic melanoma. The data presented at last year's ASCO by Steve O'Day was a study in patients with previously treated melanoma where the comparator was an experimental vaccine. And that data was very important because it showed that ipilimumab was the first medicine ever to improve overall survival in patients with metastatic melanoma. The current study was a bit more conventional in design, where it took the standard chemotherapy, decarbazine or DTIC, and added to it either ipilimumab or a blinded placebo. And this is really the way historically that phase three trials in metastatic melanoma were done, standard medicine with or without the experimental medicine. Could I just ask you, maybe just to backtrack a little bit, could you just review a little bit about what's thought in terms of the mechanism of action of this agent and whether you think there would be theoretically, I think in the paper it was discussed, it would have any additive or negative impact in terms of IPI? Right. So ipilimumab is a human monoclonal antibody which blocks a critical checkpoint on T-cells called CTLA-4. And this CTLA-4 acts as a break that prevents T-cells from activating more strongly than they otherwise would. And so by giving an antibody to that checkpoint, we allow T-cells to become more activated. Now, combining that with chemotherapy at first blush might be thought to impair the activity of ipilimumab because we consider chemotherapy to be immunosuppressive by traditional considerations. But there is good rationale to believe that some chemotherapies might actually be additive or even synergistic with immunotherapy. The reason being that if chemotherapy kills some tumor cells, that could release debris, and that debris contains antigen that the immune system could possibly target. In addition, some chemotherapies can actually change the immune subsets and deplete suppressive T-cells and also have an effect on the microenvironment around a tumor, which would let more immune cells in. So going into this, I don't think that there was a strong feeling one way or the other, whether decarbazine would either impair or enhance ipilimumab. I think that you could make a case either way. Was there any consideration, I'm sure there was, to the possibility of just putting it straight up against DTIC? I think that was a possibility. It would have been a three-arm trial, ideally, of, you know, one, the other, or both. But there was a strong suspicion at the time when the trial was designed, probably 2005 and 2006, that the release of antigen could be very important. So what did you find? Well, this is a study in just over 500 patients, 250 randomized to each arm, and we found that the group that received ipilimumab with decarbazine had a statistically significant improvement in overall survival compared to the group that got decarbazine with placebo. There was about a 28% reduction in the risk of death with a very significant p-value. There was also improvement in progression-free survival. Interestingly, the toxicity profile 
was different than expected in some ways. As opposed to last year, when we were analyzing the data from the ipilimumab versus vaccine trial, we saw that there were actually some drug-related deaths. There were some gastrointestinal perforations and a significant incidence of high-grade diarrhea and colitis. In this study, there were no treatment-related deaths in the ipilimumab plus decarbazine arm. There was one in the decarbazine alone arm. There was very little high-grade diarrhea and colitis, and there were no gastrointestinal perforations. What we did see was a higher-than-expected incidence of elevation of AST and ALT transaminases, 20 to 30 percent of patients with that. And that really gave us some good information that what you pair ipilimumab with, in this case decarbazine, can actually direct where the toxicity will go. Because decarbazine by itself has a low but known incidence of causing liver toxicity. And so here we really saw that combining it with ipilimumab shifted the toxicity profile away from the gastrointestinal events and more toward these hepatic enzyme elevations, which were really well controlled with the use of prednisone or other immunosuppressants. Now, looking at liver biopsies and other evaluations that were done of these patients, is the thinking that this is an autoimmune sort of liver damage or more sort of drug direct effect on the liver kind of thing? I'm not aware that any biopsies were done on this study, but for ipilimumab alone, these are considered to be tissue-specific inflammatory events, you know, sort of a lymphocytic hepatitis, if you will. And could you describe what your perception is of the side effects profile of ipilimumab when used alone? Yeah, I think the best way to think about it is as a spectrum of tissue-specific inflammation. And that's very mechanistic. If you imagine that we're really releasing this negative checkpoint that usually holds back lymphocytes full activation, that we're going to get some immune infiltrate in normal organs. And the areas that have traditionally been most common for this inflammation in the monotherapy studies have been the skin and the GI tract. The skin toxicity is actually more of a pruritus and less of a rash and is very well controlled, usually with topical emollients or corticosteroids. The gastrointestinal events, as I mentioned before, the high-grade diarrhea and colitis has obviously been a problem in the past. Some people in the early days of the clinical trials actually dying from gastrointestinal perforation. As the community of clinical investigators learned more about this toxicity and gained more experience, worked with the sponsor, we developed a very simple algorithm for management of this diarrhea because it can't be managed like normal chemotherapy diarrhea. We really need to encourage our community colleagues who are probably very used to seeing diarrhea with some anti-cancer therapies like irinotecan, for example, and treat that very effectively with anti-motility drugs. This cannot be treated in that same way. It must be treated like an inflammatory bowel disease with corticosteroids early. And if that's the case, then the risk of high-grade diarrhea and colitis becomes much less significant. And we really have seen a sharp drop-off in the rate of perforation now down to zero in this phase three trial. And also, you know, very few incidents of truly high-grade events. Can you provide a little more of the flavor in terms of the efficacy? It's a little tricky looking at these data because it seems like the response rate in 
progression-free survival advantage is not what you would normally see, I guess, characteristic of immune-type therapy. But what's the bottom line of what do you think is going on? That's a very important point. The efficacy of ipilimumab is very much unlike other direct anti-cancer therapies like chemotherapy or targeted pathway inhibitors. It really needs to be considered that we're treating the patient and the patient's immune system as regaining control over the tumor. And that may happen quickly in a small number of people, and that's where you see the response rate, you know, the percent of patients who have tumor shrinkage at a certain point in time. But more commonly, we see long-term stable disease or stable disease that evolves into a partial or complete response. And this is not something that most oncologists are used to seeing. We believe that we're really reestablishing equilibrium between patient and tumor and that the prolongation of survival is probably the most accurate way to measure that efficacy endpoint and not necessarily a radiographic response rate at one point in time. And this is something that I think is going to become more common as immunotherapies take hold. This is something that was certainly a question with the development of Cipulus-LT for prostate cancer, where there wasn't much seen in the way of response rate or PSA declines, but there was a prolongation and overall survival. So I think as we develop multimodal ways of treating cancer, those that directly affect the tumor, those that mobilize the host defense, we're going to have to broaden the way that we think about efficacy. Right now, obviously, this agent is approved. How are you utilizing it outside a protocol setting? Well, the ipilimumab was approved quite broadly, actually, by the U.S. FDA for first-line and refractory patients. We believe, actually, that right now melanoma has become a disease that is, for lack of a better word, the poster child for personalized medicine. We believe that every patient needs to really be put on a pathway where a therapy is identified for them that holds out the best hope for giving them a meaningful response. And right now, as we learned at ASCO, manipulation of the MAP kinase pathway is very important, specifically BRAF inhibition. So at the get-go, we believe that anybody with metastatic melanoma should have a genotypic analysis of their tumor, specifically looking for BRAF or CKIT mutations, because those are mutations for which there are both approved medicines in the case of CKIT, not on label use, of course, for melanoma, but there are KIT inhibitors that are approved for other purposes that have activity in melanoma, and also the experimental RAF inhibitors, which are really in the late stages of clinical evaluation now. So if a patient has an actionable mutation and is very symptomatic, then we know that the targeted pathway inhibition would say a BRAF inhibitor can provide rapid relief of symptoms. And as vimurafenib, the BRAF inhibitor that was also discussed in the plenary session, now is in an expanded access program and will be used in combination therapies. We have an upcoming study of vemurafenib with ipilimumab. We believe that patients with BRAF mutations and symptomatic disease should really get exposure to a RAF or a MEK inhibitor as early as possible. For patients without an actionable mutation, I think that upfront ipilimumab really represents a meaningful choice because it improves overall survival. The other choice, of course, is high-dose IL-2, which remains a medicine approved for melanoma, not necessarily applicable 
for the broader population because of its particular side effect profile. But in this situation, I think ipilimumab upfront for patients who don't have mutations is a reasonable approach. Or if patients progress on another prior therapy, specifically a targeted pathway inhibitor, then ipilimumab has an indication in that setting as well. And if a patient about to start ipilimumab would ask you, what's the chance that I'm going to be one of these people with prolonged stable disease or responses? The data would indicate that somewhere between 20 and 30% of patients have disease control. And getting patients to understand that there's a difference between tumor going away and tumor that just stops growing is a new discussion that we're learning to have more effectively with patients. I think I have some experience with this, having been involved in the ipilimumab clinical trials now for about six years, where I share with patients my experiences that patients that were treated four and five years ago never had normalization of their scans, but nor did they have worsening of their scans, and they continue to feel well and work full-time. And sort of getting back to the idea of personalized medicine, where are we in terms of trying to identify those 20 or 30 percent of people? And do you think there's any kind of overlap between them and the people who respond to IL-2? I don't think that we yet have a predictive biomarker for identification of patients who are more likely to benefit from ipilimumab. We have some very earnest studies going on in our laboratory and several others around the world to try to identify them. But right now, there is nothing that we can identify at baseline that will allow us to enrich the population. What about this issue? Is there a connection between the group who responds and the group who responds to IL-2? There doesn't seem to be, and there was an abstract at ASCO that addressed that point, and there doesn't seem to be a necessary overlap. So just because a patient progresses on one or the other doesn't mean that they are not a responder to immunotherapy. And in fact, I believe there will be a trial in the coming year from the cytokine working group, which looks at a combination of the two. What about the paper by Stephen Hody looking at, I thought it was an interesting combination of ipilimumab and bevacizumab? Yes, this is a really interesting study, and it brings up the important and sometimes overlooked idea that VEGF inhibition can be immunomodulatory. Because not only would you imagine that an anti-angiogenic effect could lead to necrosis of tumors and release of debris, which would serve as antigen and again, potentially add to the effect of ipilimumab. But in fact, VEGF can stimulate an immunosuppressive pathway. And by inhibiting VEGF, one might imagine that you could get more robust either antigen presentation or T-cell activation. So this study was really initiated with very interesting scientific background. And what the study showed was that there was a very impressive response rate and that, again, we learned that what you pair ipilimumab with can affect the way that the toxicities play out. In this case, I think there was more hypophysitis pituitary inflammation than we might expect from ipilimumab alone. Why the combination with bevacizumab would do that, I don't know that anyone is sure yet. There was also observation of vasculitis in this study, including temporal arteritis, which was not common, actually, in ipilimumab monotherapy and does definitely play to the mechanism of action of vascular targeting with bevacizumab. In addition, the use of bevacizumab might be 
thought to improve lymphocyte trafficking into tumors by causing a normalization of blood vessels, which has certainly been seen in prior studies of bevacizumab alone and other tumors. So I think this is an important study. I think that it showed us quite a bit of biology of what can happen when one has an immune potentiator as well as an anti-angiogenic drug. And I think, you know, right now our colleagues are considering how to expand on these results potentially with a larger study. And of course, you know, 20-some patients is a pretty small study. I'm trying to remember hearing about Bev and melanoma before. So Bev and melanoma was explored in a trial of carboplatinum plus paclitaxel with or without bevacizumab a few years ago. And there was some excitement about it based upon early results. But then in a more recent analysis, the survival advantage was lost. And so that study, I think the final answer was that it was negative for overall survival. There was some data at ASCO this year, again, looking at bevacizumab with combinations of chemotherapy. And in addition, there was some phase two data from the Angelus Clinic looking at nanoparticle albumin-bound paclitaxel with bevacizumab, which was showing quite high response rates, admittedly, in single-institution phase two studies. So you're correct that there has not been a plethora of studies, but it has been explored. I think that perhaps this study by Hody will reinvigorate the field. You mentioned nabpaclitaxel. As long as you brought that up, I'm not sure that much came out at ASCO on it, but I'm just kind of curious, is that an agent that's in your non-protocol algorithm? It's not in our non-protocol algorithm because it doesn't have an FDA indication. I know that there are other sites that are looking at it, but I think it really should be considered in an on-study sense. From your perspective, have objective, useful clinical response rates been observed with that agent? There have been. There have been. I think Steve O'Day's phase two data is really the most informative. You mentioned the hypophysitis. How is that clinically manifested? That's a great question, because certainly some of the immune-related adverse events, skin and GI events, are really not a mystery. The hypophysitis can often be a subtle presentation, and sometimes patients will complain of fatigue or eye pain or subtle changes in their vision or headache. And of course, anytime a melanoma patient complains of a headache, that usually triggers a brain MRI, and that's still the right thing to do. I think as one gets more experience with this drug, if you're going to do brain imaging, make sure that there are thin cuts through the pituitary or some cuts through the pituitary. Interestingly, after we usually start to talk about hypophysitis, especially with male patients, they will very quietly share with us that the first thing they experienced was a loss of libido. And I actually had this happen last week where we had a patient with headaches and his female partner took me out of the room and said, I don't know if this is connected or not, but this is a person who had a very significant libido and in the past two or three weeks it's gone. So I think it's important for us to talk about that sometimes unspoken of subject with patients who are on this medicine because it can often be the first presenting symptom. And what we've learned about hypophysitis is that damage to the pituitary that occurs is sometimes not reversible with high-dose corticosteroids, that the damage can be permanent and patients can end up requiring pituitary hormone replacement for life, which, again, in the context of someone with metastatic melanoma, with the disease becoming under control, that may not be a big price to pay, but it still is a morbidity. And 
if we know about the hypophysitis earlier, it's possible to reverse it with early use of corticosteroids. How about hypothyroidism? That can certainly occur as well. There can be primary hypothyroidism from direct immune infiltrate of the thyroid gland. And again, uh, I think the earlier we know about that, the better, because these endocrine glands don't really appreciate the damage of the immune infiltrate. And I would say a significant number of patients with thyroiditis, it's not reversible and they end up on thyroid hormone replacement. But hypothyroidism can also, of course, occur because of hypophysitis. And you mentioned looking at the pituitary on imaging. What actually do you see? You actually see an enlargement of the pituitary, usually about a doubling of the size of the pituitary gland. And, you know, once you remind your neuroradiologist that this is a possibility, they actually become quite interested in this because it's not something that they see all the time, but it is in all the textbooks. So let's move over to BRIM3 and the other plenary presentation. Right, so BRIM3 was the phase 3 clinical trial of vemurafenib versus dacarbazine in the first-line setting of patients with BRAF-mutated melanoma, and it was presented by my friend and colleague Paul Chapman. This was another very important study which showed that BRAF inhibition as a monotherapy could extend overall survival compared with dacarbazine alone. And what we saw in this study was confirmation, again, of what was seen in the phase one experience with vemurafenib and also at ASCO this year, the results of the so-called BRIM2 study, which was the phase two experience with vemurafenib, which showed that the objective response rate is in the neighborhood of 50%. These responses tend to happen quite early and with very impressive symptom relief. The challenge with BRAF inhibition is that it produces relatively short-lived responses compared with immunotherapy. The median time to relapse is in the neighborhood of six or seven months. So we need to have other ideas for how to improve the durability. But this was a very important study, BRIM3. It showed us that in a multi-center phase three international trial that there could be the early emergence with very short follow-up of a very impactful survival benefit and also progression-free survival benefit. Yeah, those progression-free survival and overall survival curves were pretty interesting visually. You know, oncologists have heard a lot about, obviously, erlotinib, gefitinib, and non-small cell. Your colleagues down the hall, Mark Chris, Vince Miller, and Greg O'Reilly have educated everybody a lot about that. And to what extent do you think there's an analogy between melanoma and, you know, I guess, EGFR mutation-positive lung cancer and the paradigm they're going through in terms of resistance? I think that the gross observations are very similar, that an enriched population of patients is going to show you a very impactful clinical benefit. So the same thing we saw with EGFR mutations, that only when we subsetted out the patients who had an aberration in the EGFR pathway did we see an effect of the drug very similar to BRAF mutation. If you look at all melanoma patients, you're going to dilute the effect. Admittedly, it's 50% of melanoma patients, so you're still going to see something. 
because of the preponderance of patients that have a BRAF mutation. I think that the mechanisms of resistance are going to be distinct. I think the resistance happens a bit sooner with vemurafenib than it does with the EGFR inhibitors. You know, there is a lot of crosstalk of other pathways that drive proliferation in melanoma cells, whereas perhaps the other small molecules, I mean, if we use imatinib as the paradigm, the resistance to imatinib can occur because of a secondary mutation in the BCR able that prevents the drug from working. Here, with the RAF inhibitors, we don't see so much that there are additional mutations in RAF, but we see aberrations in other pathways in the resistant tumors that grow out. And some of those are clearly there at the baseline because the very short period of time for the emergence of resistance would be difficult to reconcile with sort of an induced type of mutation. So I think we recognize that melanoma is a very complex disease, that it is driven in 50% of patients, its proliferation is driven by BRAF, but there are certainly other pathways at baseline that are aberrant. And this shouldn't be a surprise when we remember that many benign nevi have the same BRAF mutation that melanoma cells have. So clearly, BRAF mutation can drive proliferation, but it is not the beginning and the end of the malignant phenotype in melanoma. And both from the BRIM3 as well as you mentioned the BRIM2 update that was presented by Dr. Revis at ASCO, what's the bottom line in terms of toxicity? It's pretty interesting. Very interesting toxicities, you know, most of it involving the skin, actually. There can be significant photosensitivity, so patients need to be very careful in the sun. There can be rash, and then there is the appearance of proliferations of keratinocytes, and this can actually be a spectrum from papillomas to keratoacanthomas to true squamous cell carcinomas, which require vigilant dermatologic surveillance. The treatment is not complicated. It's excisions, but I think it's something that needs to be kept an eye on. It probably mechanistically is a result of the fact that these keratinocytic proliferations are driven by RAS, R-A-S, mutations present at baseline caused by potentially UV exposure. And then because of the kind of paradoxical activation of the RAF pathway that vemurafenib can cause in non BRAF mutated cells, this can actually just drive these existing proliferations quicker than they otherwise would. These are more on sun-exposed areas? Yes. And also another side effect that was reported was arthralgias. What's the clinical syndrome? It really is a true arthralgia. It can be a dose-limiting toxicity in some patients. We try to treat them with non-steroidals or maybe low-dose steroids, but what really works quite effectively is holding drug until the symptoms resolve and then restarting at a lower dose. And we know that the pharmacologic window is actually quite wide for vemurafenib. In the phase one study, there were multiple different dose levels that showed clinical activity. The currently thought of dose in the phase two and phase three programs is 960 milligrams twice a day. So, you know, if patients do have dose-limiting toxicity at that, stop, restart at 720 twice a day. We know that 720 is also an active dose. Now, you mentioned this fascinating issue with the squamous cell cancers and keratocanthomas, and your colleague, Mario LaCouture, who we work with a lot, fantastic educator, dermatologist, had a presentation at ASCO looking at RAS mutations in these lesions. 
Yes, that's right. That's right. And so I think that is very important to show biologically how these lesions can occur. You know, the first time one hears about this story of other non-melanoma skin cancers occurring in patients treated with RAF inhibitors, it makes one think, well, are these secondary malignancies? You know, that's really the way that we've been trained to think from chemotherapy causing DNA damage. But this is something very different where the DNA damage exists, you know, at baseline. And what we're doing here is, I believe, just causing them to become apparent quicker than they otherwise would. But in fact, he was able to document RAS mutations in these quote, well, not secondary cancers, but in these squamous cell cancers. Right, right. So I would posit that, you know, if we biopsied those areas of skin where these keratinocytic proliferations occurred later, we would have probably found those RAS mutations at baseline. So in other words, in the normal skin? Yeah, or in apparently normal skin. 